Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. William Warning. He is Program Director of Crozier Keystone Family Medicine Residency Program and an innovative thought leader in the entire area of patient-centered medical home. And when we talk about PCMH or patient-centered medical home, it's something that most primary care doctors are very interested in, but many just don't understand or are grappling with the concept. Perhaps maybe you can explain, first of all, patient-centered medical home and then, and then the new work you're doing. Sure, Brian. Uh, well, the patient-centered medical home officially came out in a joint standards in 2007, and then in 2008, the um, NCQA came out with a certification program whereby practices can go through several elements and become certified. And we did become certified. We were the first residency training program in the country to become certified as a PCMH uh, right outside of Philadelphia. And feel that it's really brought really what we would call team-based care to the family practice office. It has um, really changed the way that we function internally. It doesn't look any different. People think that the home should look different. It actually just functions differently in a patient-centered way. So that means expanded hours. That means getting people in for open access as well as uh, coordinating their care both inside the office meaning you know, just making sure that gaps of care are completed, preventative measures are met, and then also coordinating services outside the office, which is much more challenging because that means coordinating it with specialist groups. That means coordinating care in uh, all the referral basis, whether it's uh, physical therapy or emergency room visits or hospitalizations. But uh, in a nutshell, I would call the patient-centered medical home a team-based approach to primary care. So when you look at it and look at what you're doing, one of the things you're talking about is a workforce approach. Can you explain that? We're training family medicine residents in this new model of care, and quite frankly, we have seen a tremendous increase in PCMH practices in the Philadelphia, Southeast Pennsylvania, and tri-state area, and we really feel that our job is to train uh, the future workforce, i.e. residents, to go out and be able to either uh, be comfortable in these practices or to help them also transform. There's nothing you know, more important than looking at the pipeline. Anytime we try to change something, we always say, gee, I wonder how the doctors are going to learn this. And as you know, this pipeline is many years in the making from medical school on, and we, we are touching the graduate medical pipeline to really say we're going to train residents in a model uh, clinic, if you will, uh, that's going to really reflect what it's going to look like to be out in practice. For our listeners all around the country who are dealing with this, you come up with a good point talking about training the younger doctors because really that is the future, isn't it? It sure is. And we're, we're noticing that if the practices that they're joining now, because we've trained and graduated about five classes under this new model, if the practices they're joining are not quite ready, most are thinking about it, hearing about it, potentially desiring to do it, that these new graduates can bring them a wealth of information and say, this is the way we did it in our practice. Um, And then on the flip side, if the practices are quite ready, then these residents can kind of step right in and help them bring some of the nuances of uh, this training model to the practices. One of the things I like about this whole idea is, you know, growing the idea and finding out better ways to do things. We're not really reinventing the wheel now. We're, we're trying to come up with new and different approaches to care. What have you seen as some of the deficiencies, you know, some of the obstacles, especially for places that are thinking about doing this and taking those steps? 
Boy, uh, you hit them all uh, as you go along it. Uh, first of all is just buy-in, uh, just having the leadership really from the top down say that this is a um, a transition that we want to make. A lot of us really feel, and, and as I did I'm in, in a training program, I felt like we had a really high-functioning practice, quite quite well run, uh, good quality measures, good patient satisfaction. Pretty proud of our practice as we sat there, and, and then we really looked at the way that we managed our population, there were big gaps. Uh, there were big gaps in care. We were not achieving just simple things, you know, full, you know, pap smear recommendations, mammogram recommendations, certainly preventative care recommendations. So we felt that the doctors wanted to achieve 100% on all these measures, but we were only able to achieve in the, in the, in the middle percents. I mean, literally 50, 60% on most of these things. So a lot of the gaps were just getting the data to show to the physicians, boy, you know, we're really not at where we think we should be in, in, in quality measures. Um, and that often came from the insurance companies, which is the data that doctors just want to ignore because we don't really trust it. It's old. It's, uh, it very comes late. It usually tells us something we're not doing well in a very general sense, and we had to just swallow that pill and say, you know what, these numbers are directionally correct. They may not be perfect, but we have to actually look at our own data. So we actually had to get physician buy-in was probably the number one thing. And you stumble across it, the staff buy-in is number two, and then, then you have to focus on the patient because the patients don't get this. And I think the patients are still naive about what this new model of care that's ripping across the country is like. Um, even some of our patients don't really even know they're in a medical home. You know, they don't really understand what it's like. What about that? I mean, if, when you know, you think there's so much money being spent on health care. If you look at even the whole debacle, I guess you would say, with the start of national health care and all, everything with Obamacare and how people don't understand it, they don't know what's going on. What about the general lack of awareness of the public? I mean, how do you go out and educate people? Are they just not concerned about their health until there's a health issue that bothers them? What do you think the barriers that are out there are, and, and how can we deal with them? I think a lot of the barriers are the the lack of proactiveness in healthcare. You know, even as a primary care office, we are the doctors for these patients, no matter where they touch our system. And we're not as proactive as we should and could be about notifying patients, hey, you're due for an immunization. Hey, it's been so many you know months since we've seen you, you need to get in here for whatever kind of uh, chronic disease check. And so the patients really may see us, they may even be on medications for chronic diseases, and they, if we don't bother them and they don't bother us, they kind of go along until their prescriptions run out, frankly, and, and that's really not good care. And so we're starting to reach out to patients much more, and I think that that has educated them and activated them to say, wow, I, I'm a partner in my health care, and my doctor really does care. And I liken it to um, if people have a car dealer that they go to, you kind of know where your car stands. You know, they they let you know. If if you try to slip in for an oil change and you're 50,000 miles, they're going to say, guess what, you need that and this. Um, You can agree or disagree, but, uh, you know, they kind of let you know where you are. And other industries do this very well, uh, where we're up to date on all of our other needs in our lives, yet our health care is not been really proactive because doctors are busy and they don't have time to reach out, let alone handle what's within. Maybe we should have little lights with a wrench or something on our body so let us know when it's time to go in. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm your host, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bill Warning, Program Director, Crozier Keystone Family Medicine Residency Program. And that's an important thing, too, because he's teaching young doctors, as we alluded to earlier, and trying to get you know information to them. When you deal with young doctors, are they open to these ideas? Are they more receptive? Are they less receptive? 
than your older colleagues? What have you found? Oh, my, they're, they're much more receptive. It is actually a pleasure and quite easy uh, to teach the young physicians, and we're talking about, you know, 27 to 30-year-old uh, physicians coming out of medical school right now in training, um, what we would call this new way of care. They, they demand technology. They demand information immediately. They just grew up with it. They, know, they don't even know paper charts anymore. I'm training multiple residents who have never seen a paper chart in their entire career. So they actually assume uh, that information is easy to access, it's transparent, and it flows very easily between healthcare institutions. Um, and they're, they're really trained in team-based care much more than, say, you and I were. When we went to our training programs in residency, physician training was very autonomous, very much you're on your own, you're the leader, you're the king of the ship. And, and in medical schools now, most of them are pass-fail. They work in groups, they break them up into groups, they add interprofessional training aspects of it, so they're often training with other um, pharmacists in the pharmacy school. They're training with nurses in the nursing school, and there are medical students doing this in multiple institutions, uh, certainly around Philadelphia and elsewhere. So they're geared towards team-based care. They're geared towards information quickly, and it's very difficult to teach the older generation, and my generation, and some of our faculty, quite frankly, have been teaching for decades, some of us, and, and quite frankly, we, we were not worried to grow up with that. And we, a lot of doctors feel like it's their job, and I don't let my nurse do that because that's my job, and that's what I do as a doctor, and we have to kind of give that up a little bit. And whether that's pride or ego, just quite frankly, just retraining and raising up uh, your staff members to the highest level of their job description so they can take on some of these tasks that aren't the physician's job, that the physician can work in more of a team-based setting. You know, I've talked about it before on the program for people who listen on a regular basis, and one of the things I do is I work a great deal with pharmacists in, in a role I have, and, and when I work with them, what I'm realizing more and more from them is it is definitely a collaborative care model that works best. I mean, if you can have on the floor pharmacists advising you about medications, maybe in a group huddle, talking with the nursing who are talking about issues with the patients, you know, you look at it now and you go, why, didn't we're, why weren't we always doing this? It seems like such a logical approach. Oh, it sure is. I think it's logical. I think it's safer care for our patients. It's better satisfaction for the patients and, and ourselves because we actually have another resource we can turn to and say, frankly, help me with this medication list. <laughs> you know, I'm going to put on it yet another medicine and they're already on anticoagulant. What am I going to do? And I think that in our office right now, our family medicine residents are training right alongside uh, PharmD. We have a PharmD with PharmD students in our office in their six-year pharmacy school. We have a, a social worker student in our office. We have an RN case manager, often with other students. We have a behavioralist. Behavioral science is huge and has been, we actually needed to really expand that aspect during our patient center medical home initiative. And now we have a behavioralist who trains PsyD students in our office as well. So we have multiple, in addition to medical students and medical residents and family medicine residents as well. Um, so we're really recreated this team and this multi-interprofessional training program where um, it's really rich conversations and everyone has a role. And I just have to get them to speak up because they still think, oh, you're the doctor. Well, I'm a doctor who, I'm not the specialist in some, like, for instance, pharmacy care. I mean, you're really good at this. Just, you know, let me, let me know what, what you think about this, and, you know, we'll make a decision together. And so I agree with the collaborative model. Well, obviously, those of us listening to this program, if we're in primary care, you, know, you tend to be 
more proud of your own specialty. It's just human nature. But do you think primary care doctors, family doctors, uh, are more prepared for dealing with these things and this type of collaboration than maybe some other specialties? Because in a sense, we've we've always been working in that kind of a, a arrangement. I, I do believe so. I, I do think that's one of the things that drew us into the specialty. We are people per- persons, uh, many of us, and we do um, partner with our patients. We partner with our staff, and it's more of a natural and in addition, I think that we really do two things really well that, that helps patient outcomes. One is we build relationships, and that relationship we leverage multiple times in the care of a patient to help them do something that they need to do for their health or help them make decisions that are very difficult. So we build relationships, and we do complex medical disease management really well. And that's not paper shuffle. That's not checking boxes. That's not a lot of the things that frustrate us. It's really sitting down and putting multiple complex diseases together in the context of the patient, the context of the family, the context of the community. We are the specialists in that as family physicians, and we're the only ones who can do all that. We're the only ones who have all that data to do all that. No No other physician has that information, and that makes us the center of that to really coordinate such a team and collaborate with this team. Now, we've talked about a lot of the positives. We don't have too much time to go, but what are we skipping that are negatives? You know, you look back on it and go, boy, I wish I did this, or I should have done that better. What words of warning or wisdom do you have for those who are out there, uh, you know, about to take this on? Well, one thing is our type A behavior gets in the way of us wanting to do this immediately. Most of us say, oh, my gosh, this is certification. I can do that. Let's just go ahead and do this. And I think patience. Uh, There were times when I... Um, even pushed our own team, which is a pretty innovative team, and they like, they like a challenge, but I pushed them way too much um, because I didn't realize how hard it takes to change a culture. Um, we're, we're not only changing the model of care, but we're changing the culture inside of our office, and then we have to change the patients and educate them as well. So I think patience uh, is really number one in learning when to stop and just back off a little bit. Um, and then number two is actually really listening to everybody. Um, you know, we, we often had meetings when we had kind of business meetings and team meetings, and we really didn't include the front desk, the back desk, every, every aspect of our office. And, and quite frankly, every aspect of our office is part of the clinical care team, whether they know it or not, and they are big parts of it. So we just really realized uh, about midway that every meeting we had to include aspects of all parts of the office to really have buy-in and say and, and empowerment. Well, Dr. Warning, I want to thank you. We've run out of time, but I want to thank you for joining and sharing your insights on primary care today. It was really a pleasure to have you join us and, and take that time. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com slash Primary Care Today to download the podcast and learn more on the series. I want to thank you all for listening. Take care.